we are in Exodus chapter 17, 8 through 16. Lean on me is the title of the text. Let me just tell you a little bit about the history of this text. For me, 14 years ago, uh, in August, I preached this. It was August 2nd, 2007, to a mixed congregation. It's when Living Truth was actually, just before the church was born, two congregations came together, and we went over to their place, and this was the text that the Lord had put on my heart. And I had called it at that point, Hold My Hands Up, and you'll see why. But my new title is Lean On Me, and there's definitely been some things added to it. And most of you have forgotten the sermon from 14 years ago if you were here anyway. But it marks the time of 14 years of God's faithfulness to this fellowship. And it has grown and it has expanded its reach and to God be the glory. Exodus 17, lean on me. If you are able to physically stand, would you do so as we read the text together? Exodus 17, verse eight. It reads this way. Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Exodus 17, 9, choose men for us and go out, fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Joshua did as Moses told him, fought against Amalek, and Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed, verse 12. But Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until sunset. And so Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And so Moses built an altar, 15, and named it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, The Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Let me pray over us. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful text that will teach us much about our life of worship. It is a great picture of what a life needs to be focused on God. When our eyes are on you, we're winning, Lord. And usually when our eyes are not on you, we're losing. And I pray that what you want us to hear and apply, you would help us to hear it and apply it, soften our hearts. And I pray that you would speak and uh, draw us close to you and be glorified in Jesus' name Amen. Well, this is called Lean on Me, and I, I think you can see from the text that Moses becomes a picture, literally, of the ultimate prayer warrior. We've heard over the years, if you've been a Christian for a while, that there are prayer warriors. And what does that mean? Well, that they fight in prayer, that they may have a, uh, a deeper commitment to prayer, or they're just a person who has a desire to pray for people constantly. We call them prayer warriors. And there is an aspect to spiritual life and spiritual warfare where that is exactly what we need to be doing. We need to be warriors in prayer. In fact, the seventh piece of armor and the famous seven pieces in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 is prayer, often overlooked. 
but we need the word of God and we need prayer. And Moses was an older guy at this point, and he did not go down into the valley to fight Amalek. He stationed himself on the top of the hill. And if you read anything on this section, you will find out that scholars will say that the battle was won on the top of the hill, not down in the valley. But the battle still needed to be fought in the valley. And I see here a two-pronged attack. We as a church do a lot of different things. We do radio ministry. We have missionaries. We have an evangelism team. We do outreach. We do many other things, church services. And each of the services that you attend are bathed in prayer. There's a group of people who come and pray. Because without the power of God, we can do nothing. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We must abide. We must pray. And so here's Moses. And this is the most picturesque account that I can think of in the Bible of how we fight our battles. I can't think of the artist's name right now, but he sung, this is how I fight my battles. Is it Michael W. Smith? Uh, anyway, this is how we fight our battles. We fight our battles in prayer, but more specifically in keeping our eyes on the Lord. Now, what the Lord's been doing with Israel has been teaching them faith lessons. And remember, he has given them manna from heaven, which is a picture of the bread of life, Jesus. And he's given them water out of the rock. And that's a picture of the living waters that Jesus promised would come to us. And they would ultimately be the power of the Holy Spirit within us. So each of the miracles that happened, the manna and the water from the rock, point to deeper truths. But here's what was going on within Israel. Israel's main enemy at this point is not external, it is internal. They were complaining. They were whining. They said, why did you bring us out here to die? We don't have anything to eat. They got the manna. Why did you bring us out here to die? We don't have any water to drink. They got the water. And God was teaching them how to rely upon him and trust him. And that's what he's doing in our lives. So sometimes things may get a little bit thin, sometimes a little bit difficult, and God is teaching us how to depend on him. And there's another area that he wants us to depend on him, and it is in the area of spiritual warfare. He supplies the bread of life. He supplies the water of life. And even though we are saved by grace through faith, we have a battle to wage. And the battle is against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, I will say to you that as much as we could talk about principalities and powers and demonic forces, and we certainly wrestle against those, we have another issue. And I think it's here in the text. And the issue is the war within, the war with our flesh. I've often met the enemy, and he's staring right back at me in the mirror if you know what I'm saying. Oftentimes, the ugliness that comes from within, the ugliness of the flesh, Paul put it this way, what I want to do, I don't do, and what I hate, I often find myself doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this flesh? And then he begins to praise God for the victory that's found in Jesus Christ. As much as we do have an external battle with principalities and powers, we have an internal battle going on, and it's the battle with our flesh. It's the battle with 
Have you ever had a, a moment like this where you're, you just say to yourself, I can't believe I thought that. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe that that response came out of me. And sometimes we even do it with our nonverbals. We kind of... And we say plenty without even speaking a word, right? But we're Christians. And for many of you, you've been Christians for a long time. But you can see how your flesh can rear its ugly head. Peter writes about this when he says, 1 Peter 2, 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. 1 Peter 2, 11. If you read some commentators on Amalek, Amalek becomes a picture of the war that we all battle with our flesh, with our old humanity, with the part of us that is still waiting to be redeemed, but not yet redeemed. We face this battle every moment of every day. And we're going to get a key of how to win that battle. But that is the battle with the flesh. Something that you need to know about Amalek. Look at verse 8, 17 of Exodus. Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. Amalek was an ancestor of Esau. And you might remember that Esau and Jacob were twins, and they even wrestled in the womb. And Esau is called in Hebrews chapter 12, an immoral and godless man. And if you know anything about Esau, you know that he elevated the carnal or the fleshly above the spiritual. He was willing to sell his birthright for a, basically a pot of soup or a bowl of stew. He just was a man in the moment. He didn't think about the future. He didn't elevate spiritual things. And there was a wrestling match that went on. And one of his ancestors is Amalek. And Amalek is a picture of the battle with the flesh. And we're going to battle this all of our lives. We all know the battle. We know the flesh Wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Galatians 5.17 says the two are contrary one to another so that sometimes we don't do what we want to do. We don't do the things that we would wish to do. And this is the battle that we all face, the battle with Amalek. In verse 8 of chapter 17, Amalek came and attacked Israel. This seems to be the history of the Jewish people. They get attacked. Uh, it was unprovoked. And they were attacked at this place called Rephidim, Rephidim. Now, this is known as a resting place. Pastor Matthew preached on this. And Rephidim was a resting place, kind of an oasis. But it was also a place where war broke out. I can't help but think of there's times that we, you know, we go to a place that should be restful for us. And what happens War breaks out, right? And we would expect that maybe this is the place that I'll find rest. It could be at the end of a long work day. It could be where, whatever situation you may find yourself in. And you think you're going to rest, and then the enemy comes and attacks. And this is what Amalek did. Amalek attacked Israel. Amalek means warlike. They are a warlike, uh, wandering people, and they exploited Israel as they were marching uh, by God's leading. Now, I want to show you some commentary on what happened here. This is Deuteronomy, so it's the fifth book of your Old Testament. Turn there. So I wanted to show you what Moses said about what happened with Amalek attacking Israel. This is Deuteronomy 25. We're going to pick it up at verse 16. So you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 
25, 16 says, everyone who does these things, everyone who acts unjustly is an abomination to the Lord your God. Remember, Deuteronomy 25, 17, what Amalek did to you along the way. When you came out from Egypt, how he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be, Deuteronomy 25, 19, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. Notice, Bible students, Amalek attacked the stragglers at the rear. They attacked the faint and the weary. There are scholars that believe they attacked women and children. Back to Exodus, it's also possible that they attacked the elderly who couldn't keep up with the pace of the caravan. Whomever this is speaking of, they are identified as stragglers. And we know that it's always dangerous to be a straggler, amen? Kind of behind the pace of the group. We know that the enemy is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. If you've ever watched those kind of National Geographic uh, you know, animal things, you'll see that they'll show the lion on the prowl and then this little skittish deer will come down the watering hole and you're like, get out of the house, get out of the house. He's lurking in the bushes, right? And it will become the prey of the enemy. Why? Because it's solo, away from the pack, straggling, if you will. And there's a lot of Christians that are stragglers and they get picked off by Amalek. Now, the picture really here, though, is of the flesh. And sometimes we're just not in a good routine with our walk. We're not keeping pace. We're not walking with the Lord. And we're easy pickings for Amalek. Amalek, best described, was kind of like ancient pirates of the day. And they tried to exploit people who were traveling and pick off you know, the booty and the treasure and whatever they could take. And it was clear that they did not fear God. And here's the interesting thing about Esau. Amalek being an ancestor of Esau, this was family. They were kin. So that the enemy that attacked was an unexpected source. Sometimes when our flesh rears its ugly head, we're like, oh, I can't believe that came from inside of me. But that's often how it works, is that we disappoint ourselves and sometimes we can see even darkness and struggle within. And so spiritual warfare occurred, or in this case, real warfare, against the stragglers at the rear. And so what, what would they do? Well, back in Exodus 17, Moses, the leader, instructed Joshua. Note, this is the first mention of Joshua in the Bible or in the book of Exodus, but he's obviously known. He said, choose men, Exodus 17, 9, for us, and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow, so they had a day to prepare, I will station myself on the top of the hill. We don't know what hill it was. And he says, I'll have the staff of God in my hand. When, we don't know if God specifically prompted Moses to go up on the hill. Uh, we would assume that he did. But either way, Moses takes that rod of the Lord, that, that shepherd's staff that had been transformed. This is the last mention, the first mention of Joshua in the Bible and the last mention of the staff in Scripture. And Moses says, this is what I'm going to do, but I want you to choose some men to fight this enemy, which actually ended up being a kin or a family member. 
and I'm going to go up on the top of the hill. Who would Joshua get to fight? So far, Israel has had no warfare with anybody. The only battle they've experienced really was God destroying the Egyptian army with the Red Sea. They didn't even have to do anything. All they had to do is watch and see the ultimate warrior fight the battle for them. But now they're called to fight. Which men could fight? What weapons did they have? How would they go about this? Had Joshua been doing some training of men along the way as they move to different spots? I don't know, but I would assume so. And so Joshua has been given the task now to choose an army. If you were reading the Greek form of Exodus, and there is a Greek form of it called the Septuagint, the name here would be Jesus because Joshua is the Hebrew form of Jesus, which is his Greek name. Now, Joshua isn't Jesus, but he's a picture of the coming Lord. And this is an insight into how we fight the battle. Romans 13, 14 says this, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 13, 14, and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. The way that you make no provision for the flesh is by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of you are saying, what does that mean? How would I put on Jesus? Well, the analogy in the scripture is like putting on clothing. Uh, some of you planned what you were gonna wear the night before. Some of you are like me and pretty much figure it out in the morning. But you probably took a shower. I hope most of you did, at least for the sake of your neighbor. And you picked some clothes and you got dressed. Here's the analogy. Spiritually, you have to dress every day. And what you put on is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what that means is you put on his power. You say, well, how do you do that? The way you do that is you seek the Lord so that he will clothe you, here's the image, with his power. It is a spiritual picture that when you read your Bible in the morning, when you pray, even a simple short prayer, Father, before these feet hit the floor, I offer myself as a living sacrifice. Would you clothe me with the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you fill me with the Holy Spirit? You are setting the tone for the day. Do you know what people are called who go out into the spiritual battle without that clothing? They go out naked, if you will. They're called casualties. And usually what you lose to is your own flesh. I, I know it's quiet in here. I'm feeling like someone wants to say an amen, but I know it's hard because your flesh is fighting you right now. But here's the truth. If we don't clothe ourselves with the spiritual endowments from on high, we go out unprotected. And we are easy prey to the world, the flesh, and the devil. So we need Jesus to fight our battles. And here's the good news. Jesus wants to fight our battles. He invites us to a throne, not of condemnation, but of grace. This is Hebrews 4.16. We can boldly come with confidence to a throne of grace to receive mercy and help in time of need. Hebrews 4.16. And I don't know about you, but I'm a needy man because I need his power. I cannot do this battle in my own strength. I've learned that one thing for sure. I need his power. I need his strength. 
And Jesus is up in heaven. He has a current ministry to you, his church today. He ever lives to intercede for his people. You and me. 24-7, his arms never get tired. He's the greater Moses. Up in heaven, interceding for you. Remember when Jesus had fed the 5,000 and he sent the disciples into the Sea of Galilee, sent them literally into a storm. And Jesus sent the people away and he went up on the mountain to pray. This is a kind of a greater picture of Moses. He's the ultimate Moses, if you will. And he sent them into the storm and he let them fight the storm for six, eight hours. And the wind was against them. You all know the story. And Jesus watched them and he was praying. What do you think Jesus was praying? He was praying that they would mature, that they would learn to depend on him, that they would grow in their faith. He was teaching them faith lessons. In Mark 6, it says, because their hearts, listen, were still hard. He sent them into the storm, this is my take, to soften their hearts. And this is what God sometimes do, does. So we can be in a situation where we felt like we're losing, but God is growing us, or he might be revealing something to us in a test about our own hearts and our need to depend on God. If the Israelites were to look in the mirror at their performance since leaving Egypt, what would their score be? Not so good. And we're a lot like them. We can be spiritual one moment and whining and complaining the next moment or in our flesh the next moment. And God is giving us a key insight. We need the Lord. We need to come to his throne of grace regularly. You could wake up at two in the morning. You could wake up at six in the morning and he will always be there and he will always hear your prayer and he will always be there to come to your aid. That's pretty good news, isn't it? And all you have to do to tap into that power is pray. But isn't prayer a battle? Sometimes theologically we wonder about prayer. If God is sovereign, why should I pray? Sometimes we wonder if our prayers are going beyond the ceiling. Sometimes we wonder, you know, does, does it make an impact when I pray for somebody? Because we've often prayed about things and maybe not something didn't immediately happen or something didn't change. What do we do? Prayer is a battle. It is a discipline, but it is a calling. Jesus said men ought always to pray and not lose heart. And when Jesus was leading the disciples, he prayed so much so that they asked him, Lord, teach us how to pray. So I will be completely candid with you. This has been one of my prayers over the years. Lord, teach me how to pray. Teach me what you would want me to pray and how you would want me to pray. It's a battle for all of us to be committed to prayer. But we have to bathe our lives in prayer. And when we do, we become more like Joshua, more like our, uh, the ultimate warrior, Jesus Christ, who intercedes constantly for his people. Now you say, well, how do you do this? Well, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing or pray always or pray continually. 1 Thessalonians 5.17. It's not so much about the posture, it's about the heart. I don't think that God expects any of us to be praying 24-7. That would be impossible. But what Paul is getting at is a Godward gaze in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. He's saying something like this, keep your eyes on Jesus. If you're at work, if you're at school, if you're in your neighborhood, if you're taking care of your kids, whatever situation you're in, you can be meeting someone 
hi, nice to meet you. And on a sub-level, you can still be, have your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Amen? It's a battle, but the key is the gaze of your heart, not necessarily the posture of your body. I will tell you that there are many different postures for prayer, even in Scripture, sometimes on one's knees, sometimes on one's face. In many instances for Jewish people, the typical posture of prayer was eyes open, arms out, and looking up to heaven to pray. The issue is not so much the posture of the body. It's about the attitude of my heart. And this is the lesson that's before us. And so Joshua did as Moses told him, 1710 of Exodus. He fought against Amalek, and Moses did exactly as he had said. But he had some company. Moses, Aaron, who's Moses' older brother, and her, I'll talk about him in a second, went up to the top of the hill. Three men went up to the brow of the hill. I don't know how high the hill was, but they were above where the battle was taking place below. Moses did not go up alone. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 20, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. Now I will tell you, the context of Matthew 18 is largely about church discipline and God ratifying in heaven what is committed to on the planet. But I think it has also the implication that when two or three gather in corporate prayer, the Lord is there. But he's also there when you pray alone in your prayer closet. Amen? So let's not take that verse out of context. But what I have found over the years is I find strength in corporate prayer. It's a little easier to pray with a group of people than it is sometimes to pray solo. Amen? And so I would encourage you, if you don't do this right now, come to something that has corporate prayer. We pray before the services. Wednesday night we pray from 6 to 7 some people come just for the prayer and go home. But there's a strength in that corporate prayer. There's a strength in two or three or four or five or 10 or whatever it is, seeking the Lord together. This is what the early church did. The early church prayed in Acts chapter two, waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit to come. They regularly devoted themselves to prayer and the word of God and fellowship and the breaking of bread. They prayed for Peter when he was in prison in Acts chapter 12, an all-night prayer meeting and saying, Lord, would you deliver him? And Peter was set free. The apostles said, we will give ourselves to prayer, Acts 6, 4, and the ministry of the word. This was the priority of the early church. Whenever they got in a battle, they had a prayer meeting. And I don't think that the modern church values prayer the same way, frankly. I will tell you after 9-11, there were a lot of crowded prayer meetings, but they quickly dissipated because that's just how we tend to be. And so this idea of Moses going up on the hill, he didn't go up alone. And I would encourage you maybe to be thinking about some prayer partners and to be helping others to grow, even in their knowledge of prayer, which I know some of you are doing, and it's been the focus of our men's Bible study on Thursday mornings. Listen to this. Jesus said, Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan's demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. 
One of the ways that you can strengthen others is to hold them up in prayer. Acts 18.23 says, Paul, having spent some time there, departed and passed successively through the Galatian region in Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Romans 1.11 says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. 1 Thessalonians 3.2 says, We sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. Please listen. One of the huge parts of your Christian walk is to be involved in strengthening other believers. If you will, to hold up the hands of other people. Can I ask you a personal question? Do you spend more time pushing up hands or pushing them down? I had to ask myself that this week. Am I one who builds up other people? Am I an edifier? Am, am I an encourager? Or do I get in the company of people and their hands drop instead of their hands going up? That's a consideration in our walk. Aaron, who is Moses' older brother, some believe his name means mountain of strength, and her may have been married to Miriam. There's one tr Jewish tradition that says that. So he was Moses' brother-in-law. And Aaron and her are up on the mountain to help Moses. He needed them and they needed him. And this is how it works in terms of our spiritual life. We need one another. We are the body of Christ. We've got to hold each other up. By the way, her's name means noble. And so put it together. Aaron was a mountain of strength to his brother and her did a noble thing by holding up the hands of Moses. What a beautiful picture of the body of Christ. What a beautiful picture of someone saying to another one, I'm not gonna let your hands fall. Instead of maybe looking at Moses and saying, man, you are getting old, man. You, you look like you're tiring out really quick. I mean, how many of you could say that, for those of you who do raise your hands in worship, that it's tiring to keep your hands up just during one song. I'm telling you, it is. And we're gonna do something at the end that will prove my point. But here's the deal. Moses was interceding in the war, but he couldn't do it alone. Do not try to do your Christian life solo. It just doesn't work. During World War II, a little church in Strasbourg, France, was bombed by the German army. When the war concluded, the people in the community cleared away the rubble and they found a statue of Jesus, the base of which inscribed these words, Come to me, all you who are weary. It was remarkably preserved except for both hands, which had been destroyed. Hearing of this, the sculptor whose work it was immediately offered to replace the hands, but the pastor wisely declined. And so it was that the statue was returned to its original position in the front of the church, but with a new inscription which read, he has no hands on earth but ours, for we are his body. Wow. And so it came about when Moses held up his hand, if you have a NIV, held up his hands, plural, Israel was winning or prevailing. And when he let down his hand, Amalek was prevailing or winning. It all depended on whether Moses' hands were up. 
And here's another thing to consider. Moses had the staff. I don't know if he was like this or if he had the staff in one of his hands and he had the normal posture of prayer with the hands spread out. But either way, with the additional weight of the staff, it had to be hard. And maybe Moses looked down and he, and he had his hands up and he thought, oh, Joshua's doing great. We're winning. Cool. Drop my hands. And then, uh-oh, <laughs> we're in trouble. Hands go back up. I don't know how it all worked. But as long as his hands were up, there was victory. And as soon as they began to drop, there was defeat. You say, what do we make of the raising up of the hands? Here's, I'm going to give you in rapid fire some scriptures to consider. Some of them will be up on the screen. Turn back to Exodus 9 just for a quick second. Look at verse 22. Exodus 9:22 says, Now the Lord said to Moses, 9:22, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that hail may fall on the land of Egypt, on man and beast, and on every plant of the field, Throughout the land of Egypt, there is a precedent for this. Exodus 10, 12 says these words. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts that they may come up on the land of Egypt and eat every plant of the land, even all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt. You can see the precedent for this. Now, there are several scriptures in the Psalms that I want to give you. And I'm going to do this in somewhat rapid fire. They're going to be hopefully behind me on the screen. But I want to read them to you so you can see where this comes from. Because some of you have come into the Christian church and you're like, what is the deal with this hand raising thing? And some of you, you don't know where it comes from. You don't know, is it biblical? Is it scriptural? Should I be doing this? And some of you maybe have become convinced and you've gotten about halfway up. You know, you're, this is your sweet spot right here. You're okay. And, you know, some comedians have joked that some people do the wax on, wax off kind of thing and they're pretty free and other people have got them up and other people got them down. But here's, here's the deal. Psalm 28, if you're taking notes, one and two says, to thee, O Lord, I call my rock. Do not be deaf to me lest... If thou be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Psalm 28, 2. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward thy holy sanctuary. We're going to stick with the psalm. Psalm 63, 1 through 4 says, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have beheld you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. Psalm 63, 4, I will lift up my hands in your name. Psalm 88, verse 9, if you're following along in the Psalms, 88, 9 says, My eye has wasted away because of affliction. I have called upon thee every day, O Lord. I have spread out my hands to thee. Psalm 119, verse 48 says, 119, 48, I shall lift up my hands to thy commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on thy statutes. Psalm 141, 1 and 2 says, O Lord, I call upon thee, hasten to me, give ear to my voice when I call to thee. May my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening offering. In Psalm 143, 5 and 6 says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy doings. I muse 
on the work of thy hands. I stretch out my hands to thee. My soul longs for thee as a parched land. Selah. And then one New Testament verse, just to note, 1 Timothy 2.8 says, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And so this is the attitude of prayer. It's not the only posture for prayer, but it is one posture for prayer and worship to lift up your hands to God. And you might say, well, Pastor Michael, what, what is co it communicating? I think there's several possibilities. One, when I lift up my hands, it's a, it's a posture of surrender. I am basically reaching out to God. I've heard somebody say before that you can think of when you raise up your hands, you are releasing all the cares, worries, junk, uh, you name it, to God and receiving back from him as you release the tough stuff up to him, getting back his strength so that you can mount up with wings like eagles. There's another image. Here's the image. How about of a little kid who sees you walk through the door, whether you're daddy or grandpa or great-grandpa, and comes running like this to you. Hey, daddy, daddy, daddy. Now, if my kids that did that today, I would crumble under their weight. I have three grown boys. That's just not going to work. But I'm looking forward to a grandchild who will hopefully do that. <laughs> grandpa, grandpa. And that, that's a cool feeling. And what is it? It's, it's a... It's something like a trust thing. And what do you want to do when a little child does that to you? You want to return and go, come here, right? And I imagine our Heavenly Father much like that. That whenever we say, Abba, he goes, come here, come. I'll give you the grace you need. I'll give you the strength you need for today. I know your battles. I know your struggles. I know the things that trip you up and you, you sometimes look at your own heart and you're disappointed. I get it. Come. Let me impart some wisdom. Let me impart some strength. That's what it means to have your hands up. It's not so much about the posture as it is about the heart, but the posture certainly speaks. One writer puts it this way. What happens when we don't pray? It's very simple. We start losing the battle. A quote from the Mishnah says, every time the Israelites were directing their thoughts upward, keeping their hearts subject to the Father who's in heaven, they were winning. But if they did not, they were falling. This is the difference between victory and defeat, brethren. It's right here. It has to do with where you look. Where are your eyes? Where is your gaze? And Moses, obviously this is a protracted time, it wasn't a one-minute prayer. He had to keep prevailing. And so from my notes, what's the message to us? Don't try and fight your battles without God. It won't end well. Notice something else. Sometimes in your life, you're going to prevail by God's power, and sometimes you're going to lose battles in your own strength. And there will be lessons in both. Whenever you feel like you're starting to lose, get your hands back up. It's not that complicated. I feel dry and dusty and struggling, and it's not much of a tale, but it's the only one I've got. <laughs> Get your hands up. I don't know if I'm ever going to go back to that church, you know, and this and that. And I said that this morning. And no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh. 
So Psalm 60 puts it this way. Will thou not go forth with our armies, O God? Oh, give us help against the adversary. For deliverance by man is in vain. Through God we shall do valiantly. And it is he who will tread down our adversaries. Psalm 60, 10 through 12. So sometimes my prayer is, Lord, hold my hands up. Sometimes I get weary in the battle. I will tell you, I look at our prayer chain, which represents, you know, not some mega church. And I am often overwhelmed by the amount of prayers on our prayer chain. I just have to be honest with you. So many people hurting, so many people sick, somebody's relative over here and struggle over there. And sometimes I feel like, Lord, I don't even know if I can pray right now. And let me take you, for those of you who feel that pressure off the hook a little bit, God's big enough to deal with all of this stuff. And if you don't get a chance to pray over something, someone else is probably praying for it. And God is sovereign and God is good. And the battle is his, but he uses us nonetheless. But sometimes our hands get heavy. And this is what verse 12 says. Moses' hands were heavy and they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. He finally got a chair, not much of a chair, right? And not quite a cushion on, sitting on a rock, but he sat down on the rock and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side, one on the other, and thus his hands were steady until sunset. You know, if you were the two friends up on the hill, you might be saying, Moses, get it together. Every time you drop your hands, man, we're losing. Come on. Didn't you do your push-ups? But what they did is they said, we got to help him. We got to hold his hands up. What should we do? Well, they got a rock for him to sit on, which I'm sure Moses really appreciated. He's a pretty old guy at this point. And they said, we're going to hold your hands up until we win. And I don't know if they knelt down and held his hands up. I don't know if they stood side by side. But some have said that Moses up on the hill becomes a picture of Jesus on the cross. And I'll let you consider that. Did Jesus actually die up on a hill? That's debated, but we know he died on Mount Moriah and that he's the ultimate intercessor by the work of the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, and today's ministry to us. But Moses may have said something like this. I don't know how much longer I can hold on, guys. And that's when we need our brothers and sisters to say, I got you. Sometimes you're going to be the one holding up someone's hand and sometimes you're going to need somebody else to hold up your hands. And that's why we are a body. Amen? Amen. That's why we are called to support and love one another and push up as many hands as we can. And so Aaron and her supporting Moses is a beautiful picture of the body. The lifting up of the hands has been regarded almost with unvarying unanimity by the rabbis, the fathers, reformers, nearly all modern commentators as a sign or attitude of prayer and worship. But sometimes our hands get heavy. We're called to cast all our cares to God because he what? He cares for us. First Peter 5, 7. Do you know the very next verse says, you have an enemy who prowls about like a roaring lion. Here's the message I get. If I don't cast my cares to God, I become more susceptible to the enemy. More prey to the enemy. That's what 1 Peter 5, 7 and 8 are teaching us. I gotta constantly try to give my concerns and cares to the one who cares for me. And the added 
blessing is I have the body too. I have God, my Father. I have the power of the Holy Spirit. I have my great intercessor, Jesus. And I have the body of Christ. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. When Dawson Trotman says Charles Swindoll was, when he passed away, he probably left a legacy of discipleship on this earth that will never be matched except perhaps by the life of Jesus himself. Of course, Jesus, the ultimate discipler. Swindoll says, I've become a real student of Dawson Trotman and believe wholeheartedly in the methods of discipleship that he taught and emulated throughout his days. He died in Shroon Lake, New York. He died of all things in the midst of an area in which he was an expert. He drowned and he was an expert swimmer. The last few moments he had in the water, he lifted one girl out of the water. He went down and got the other girl and lifted her out of the water then submerged and was not found until the dragnet found his body hours later. A man named Larson was on the boat when Trotman died. He said, quote, the entire United States Navy couldn't have saved Trotman that day. It was God's time. Time Magazine ran an article on Trotman's life in the next week, and they put a caption beneath his name that read, always holding somebody up. In one sentence says, Swindoll, that was Trotman's life. Investment in people, in honest humility, holding others up. And then Swindoll asks, are you doing that? Are you holding others up? Well, as Moses had his help ultimately from God and from others, Joshua won the battle. He overwhelmed Amalek and his people. With the edge of the sword, it's been pointed out that the battle still needed to be fought. It was a two-pronged attack, but the victory was won on the hill. But Joshua still had to fight, and we still have our battles to fight. And the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial. Recite it to Joshua. Isn't that interesting? I want it written down. This is the first mention of writing something down in Scripture. By the way, there's been a debate among historians and archaeologists about when the first writing happened. And there were those who questioned the Bible and said, writing wasn't this early. And then they discovered that writing was long before the time of Moses. So Moses learned how to write as he grew up in Egypt and so forth and was uh, educated. And it's to be written down as a memorial to mark the victory and how the victory was won. And it was be to, re- to be recited to Joshua. Why? Because Joshua was going to become what? The leader of Israel. And God wanted Joshua to know that the victory is won by the power of God. And Joshua would learn that as he tried, as he led the people to cross over into the promised land, they would get victories and defeats and it would all be about their obedience and dependence upon God. And and so God says to Moses, you write this down and you have it read to Joshua regularly. That's why you need to stay in your Bible. That's why you need to know that the battle is the Lord's, but you've got to tap into the power. And so it was written down and it was recited as a memorial. And God said, further, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. Look, they attacked the stragglers, the women and the children. They had no fear of God. And this battle against the Amalekites continued through Israel's history. In fact, Saul, King Saul, had a chance to wipe them out and disobeyed God. This is an example of when you don't obey God, here's what happens. It was a descendant of Agag from the Amalekites and Haman who tried to exterminate the Jews later in the book of Esther. 
Here's the point. Don't negotiate with your flesh. Don't sit at the table with Amalek, in quotes, and say, look, on Monday and Tuesday, I think I'll fall to sin. Wednesday, I'll try to get back together for the midweek service. Thursday and Friday, I think I'll fall to sin again. Don't do that. Crucify the flesh, Galatians 5.24, with its passions and desires, because if you don't, it's going to come back to bite you. Can I get a witness? Oh, it does. We play games with it, and then it rears its ugly head at a very inconvenient moment. And so Moses built an altar, and he named it. Often altars were built right on the spot where God did something special. He called the altar, the Lord is my banner. Lord is Yahweh there. Banner in Hebrew is Nisi. The Septuagint has it as the Lord is my refuge, but it is literally the Lord or is my banner or Yahweh Nisi, Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. Now, I've done a lot of research on this title or God's name here, and I will just tell you this. It can mean refuge. It can mean a signal pole like a flag, you know, kind of flowing in the wind. Uh, you know, when battles were fought, Oftentimes, people would look to a flag, and if it was still standing there, it gave them hope. It could be, have the idea of refuge. Uh, armies would fight under the ensigns of their gods. They would carry flags depicting their deities. And, and Moses says, the Lord, it's not a flag. It's not a cave. The Lord is my banner. Amen? Jesus is my banner. He is the one that I look to for strength and hope and refuge. I have a friend, his name is Dr. Green. I've shared this with some of you before. He looks at the Hebrew picture language in some detail, and he believes that it is safe to conclude that you could render the Lord is my banner as the Lord is the one I lean on. And it makes me just want to say, lean on me when you're not strong and I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on. I know the singing was not that great from up here, but you got it. Go, Brother Bert. Go, Brother Bert. Hey, we didn't even plan that. That was, that was a Holy Spirit moment. The Lord is the one I lean now, if you and I can kind of tie that bow together with Yahweh Nisi, we will have more victories than we will have defeats because we'll be leaning on him for power and strength. Amen? Amen. And so it says, the Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. The Hebrew is a little difficult, but let me just read the NIV. It could be rendered... He said, for hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. But ultimately for us, the Lord is our banner. And Isaiah 11.10 says, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. Isaiah 11.10. I'm asking the worship team to come out and I want to share just a final story with you. 
we came back from a vacation, as I mentioned, and I came back to do a wedding. It was at the Mission Inn in one of their chapels there. A young couple who was in Corona, part of this church, went with us to Israel and has relocated to Arizona. But they came in for the wedding, and so I got to do the wedding yesterday, and it was a beautiful wedding, and everything was great. And the gospel certainly came out within the the, uh, actual service itself, but they had asked me to stay and pray uh, over the meal. And so I stuck around, and uh, quite some time had passed by, and they handed me the microphone to pray over the food. But my heart was a bit troubled, and here's why. I felt like the Lord was saying to my heart, I want you to clearly share the gospel with them and ask them to respond to it. She's like, okay, Lord, I'm supposed to pray over the food here, but, uh, but when they give her a preacher the microphone, it's all over anyway, right? So, so I took the microphone, and here's what struck me. I didn't know anybody at this wedding. I knew the bride and groom, obviously, and the father of the groom, and that's pretty much the only people I knew. And I looked out at a group of about 40 or 50 people, and here's what struck me. I am probably never going to see these people again. Never. They're all going to go their separate ways. I don't know them. I have a final word to share with them. And so I said, this is the last thing that you're going to hear from me today. There is a God in heaven who loves you. And he demonstrated that love for you by sending his son to die on the cross while we were yet sinners. You must trust him for your salvation. He is literally a prayer away, but you must turn to him. And I prayed over the food and I left with my heart lifted because I did what I believe I was called to do, to say to a group of people, the Lord must be your banner. There's no other hope than to find it in Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, is he your banner? Is he your refuge? Is he your hope? I know the room is filled with believers, so I I know I'm going to get lots of amens here. But if not, make him your hope today. He does love you. There's a God in heaven who loves you. He demonstrated that love by having his son die on the cross for you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And he wants to be your banner, your hope, your strength, but you've got to turn your life over to him. So I want you to lift up your hands. If you're not a believer, something like this. Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on that cross for me. I believe that you rose again from the dead and I receive you as my personal Lord and Savior. I repent of my sin I ask for your forgiveness and that you would allow me to be born again to the hope in Jesus Christ. If you're a prodigal, keep your hands up. Father, I have been wandering. I have strayed far from home. But my eyes have picked up the light of your glory and I want to come back. Oh Lord, forgive me of my sin. Would you restore me? And you all know that story that the Father comes running. And if you're a saint today, and maybe your hands are a little heavy, 
Maybe it's been a battle this last week or two or three. And you're like, Lord, I need to give you this once and for all. And I need your strength. Oh, he is so ready to bless you and fill you and strengthen you. Just seek him right now in these final moments. Call upon his name. He will show you great and mighty things. He will fill you. He'll meet your every need. He will not push you away. He loves you. Bless your people, Lord, with the filling and the strength that they need. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Hey, that was kind of tough, wasn't it? Now you know how Moses felt. (laughs) 